Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Professor Mustafa Manali. Professor Manali is an associate professor of history at Cornell University. His first book, The Ottoman Scramble for Africa, was published by Stanford University Press in 2016 and considered Ottoman diplomatic and imperial activities during the late 1800s. His new book, Losing Istanbul, Arab-Ottoman Imperialists at the End of Empire, was also published by Stanford and is available now. It is, in some respects, a sequel to the first, but is also a deeper consideration of how diplomacy and imperialism was experienced by the elite who carried them out. So first, I'd like to welcome the professor and ask you if you could tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to these topics that you focus on in your books, and why you chose to focus more deeply in the second one on some of the characters and themes. Thank you very much for having me, Ruben. Um, uh, So this book, uh, you're right, in a way, this book is a bit of a sequel to the first book, but the themes that I deal with and also the approach uh, are very, very different. It is definitely not a diplomatic history. It is more of what I call... Uh, history of experience or experiential history um, that uh, or um, so it deals with themes that are related to imperialism in general particularly ottoman imperialism and how it relates to other kinds of imperialism uh, but uh, more importantly it it kind of uh, tells you a little bit more about how that is experienced at home in the metropole, in this case, uh, through the lives of a few people, um, uh, uh, Arab Ottomans, uh, a small Arab Ottoman community that that lived in Istanbul. There was a huge Arab Ottoman community that lived in Istanbul, but I'm talking about the small elite Arab Ottoman community that worked for uh, the palace and the sublime port um, at the end of the 19th century and went through the transition through Abdul Hamid's period into the Young Turk period, through the um, upheavals of World War One, and finally the break up of the empire. Um, it's a sequel in the sense that one of the characters that that uh, I followed um, in the first book is a kind of a, a military diplomat, if you will, uh, one of many that represented the Sultan in different places, uh, shows up in this book. I, I dig deeply into his life. His name is Sadiq Azimzadeh. Um, and over the past 15 years, I have been a little obsessed with his life, I think. Um, I've, I've dug deeply into different archives, um, done interviews with his descendants, um, uh, looked through his um, manuscripts. Um, and from there, I expanded into a larger network of his family, um, particularly his uncle, and then, of course, um, their kids and grandkids and the extended family. Um, I concentrated on this Arab Ottoman family that is in Istanbul, and I call it off Istanbul. They're very much not just uh, um, kind of um, 
expats living in Istanbul, they they like many other um, um, tena, um, you know, like like Armenian Ottomans and and Bulgarian Ottomans and and Albanian Ottomans. They very much kind of also make Istanbul what it was, and in many ways what it is today. Um, I I came to this. Uh, I decided to write this book after collecting. I've been basically. I wasn't sure if I was gonna ever gonna write a book about the Azimzades, particularly uh, in Istanbul. Um, I didn't know what interest there would be in it. Also, what value there would be in digging into someone's life. I didn't just want to write a. Um, a biography. Uh, biographies are fun, uh, but they need to have meaning beyond the person. And I didn't want to concentrate on the life of one person. Uh, so um, once I found, uh, I mean, a personal experience more or less kind of drove me into, it made it very clear why this book is needed and important. And it had to do with the, the experience of uh, like a major traumatic event. And it's the, basically the the Beirut blast that happened at the port, and I just happened to be there. Um, and talking about that blast, um, experiencing that blast, and then ex- talking about the experience of that blast made it very clear to me that that uh, we rarely seem to talk about, um, in history, I mean, in academia, we rarely talk about how things were felt, how things were experienced. We just talk about what they were and what they mean in the larger sense. But the, the, the details that the day, that everybody asks you about, about uh, in history, people that are outside of academia, they really want to know um, how can they relate to it? What kind of experience was it like? So when people would ask me about the blast, they don't ask me about, um, you know, the material that was in the blast or who might have done it. They ask you how you're feeling. How did it felt? What what was it like? Um, um, and that is very important uh, when we're talking about late Ottoman history, because how it felt, what happened, the experience, the traumatic experience of the breakup of the empire, and how in many ways there's a huge silence around it, particularly outside of Turkey, in, in places that used to be part of the Ottoman Empire and later on became their own nation states, uh, uh, does not allow the, the population that lives in places like Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, and Jordan to really own their own history. Um, I try to talk about that through the experience of this family. So basically, I call it an intimate history of global events um, uh, and and the breakup uh, of, the, of the empire as it's being refracted through the lives of these people and eventually, of course, the breakup of the family itself. I don't know if that's, uh, that answer kind of tells you where, where I ended up, why I ended up writing the book rather than um, basically why I started researching it. I started researching it out of pure curiosity, uh, if, if that makes sense. No, it really, it really does. And I mean, especially in the first chapters, you really do give a sense of what it's like to be part of this empire, the experience of being part of it, and how, you, call it, you say, Arab Ottoman elites fit into it. So maybe that's the place for us to move then, to talk a little bit about what that experience of... Istanbul was like in this time period that you're looking at, and also what it meant or what it felt like to be an Arab Ottoman elite in this time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I use, I felt comfortable using this hyphenated format, and I try and explain it at the beginning of the book, because um, 
it, it might not be very familiar to Ottomanists. Sometimes people say um, like Ottoman Armenian or Ottoman Arab. Um, but this kind of uh, first putting the, 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 uh, the quote unquote ethnic identification first and then hyphenating it with an Ottoman is something that I borrowed uh, from, from this, uh, the, the Canadian form of uh, of kind of embracing multiculturalism, and I and I really have to say this with a huge load of cynicism. I'm not I'm not embracing it myself. I actually kind of uh, uh, criticize how it's used, and then I use it. And um, the reason I use it is because I wanted to emphasize the importance of being Arab, the importance of being Armenian, and the importance of being Kurdish, the importance of being Turkish. Uh, as well as belonging to the to the larger uh, um, imperial project that is the Ottoman Imperial project at the end of the nineteenth century, I wanted it to be there for like first and foremost, but always connected to Ottomanness. I'm not talking about Arabs. Period. Um, I'm talking about Arab Ottomans in a very specific context. Um, and what it means to be Arab at that point was being formulated and changing rather rapidly. Actually, one of the things that I argue is that in this last forty year stretch being uh, the the signifier arab uh takes on a new meanings and starts to develop an ethno-racialized meaning towards the end of the empire um uh, because it's being influenced um i mean in istanbul uh, people are being influenced by uh what is happening in the rest of the empire what's happening just outside of the borders of the empire uh, and what's happening in the rest of the world in terms of uh, colonialism so what i mean by this is that notions of of ethnicity and notions of essentialized racial characteristics, which some of these imperialists would, would adopt and deploy in, in frontier regions. In this case, I talk specifically in Africa, in many ways have a huge impact on what was happening as well in the metropole um, with in their own lives as the same people that deploy um, ethno-racialized um, kind of terminology to, to signify other otherness start to be othered themselves through these uh, um, uh, terms. So being Arab starts to mean something. Uh, uh, it starts to become a lot less uh, uh, of a signifier of of uh, like an innocuous kind of signifier of of what we're used to in Ottoman history. Like you know, just saying where the person is from and then we move on. In reality, it starts. I start to argue that it it has. Um, um, a meaning uh, that cannot be ignored. And it's a meaning that carries through into World War One. kind of morphs, becomes uh, a little bit more uh, problematic because of the rise of uh, ethnic nationalism, both particularly in Turkey, but also in the rest of the region. And in many ways, we've ignored that that moment of a, a kind of a, a racialization of, of these uh, um, kind of ethnicities, the different people that made up the Ottoman Empire towards the end of the Ottoman Empire, uh, because we've we've counted uh, on the notion of millet a little too much, and we've ignored the rest of the notion of what I call unsur or uh, or um, uh, ethnic element. Uh, I try to show the significance of that in the day-to-day life of these elite uh, uh, a group of people. Um, 
I have to emphasize that I'm talking specifically about imperialists here, elite imperialists, not the day-to-day merchants that lived in or, or, or different kinds of people that lived there, teachers and whatever that are from um, Arabic-speaking majority provinces that happen to live in Istanbul. These are people that identified with the imperial project They as on an existential level. Um, um, they very much believed in, in being... Uh, um, uh, Ottomans, not as part of a dynasty, but as part of this imperial project and what it meant, and their very survival um, dependent uh, depended on on the survival of the empire, um, as Arabs, as but as well as 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 uh, members of a larger kind of a multi ethnic, multi um, uh, religious community uh, that worked for the palace and worked for the Sublime Port, uh, both within Istanbul and internationally. Um, I'm lucky enough in this case to focus on two characters, one that gives a good, a good example of one that is very much embedded in the Mabain in, in Istanbul and one, the, and his relative who is mostly uh, doing international work representing the, the sultan or, or the Ottoman government, I should say, uh, but really particularly the palace at this point in time uh, internationally. Well, And so one thing you emphasize is that the palace, Yildiz Palace, right, is very near geographically to Teshvikiye, this neighborhood where uh, many of these Arab imperialists live. And that, to me, stuck out as an example of what you're talking about, is how where they, where they moved in the city, how they imagined the city, how they imagined their, where they are in relation to the palace. That was, a, that was something I really took from reading your book. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, about the neighborhoods they live in, about that experience as well. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed about writing this book is that um, I allowed myself um, the space to describe. Um, and I'm, as, as an engineer <laughs> in term, by training, um, coming into history later on from a business background, um, Uh, The idea of descriptive anything used to really uh, bother me. I wanted evidence and I wanted analysis. Uh, What are you trying to argue and move on? And in many ways, my first book was kind of an example of that. Um, Here, I, I, I think I matured into understanding where description uh, is important. And I employed that uh, when talking about the neighborhood where they lived and their day-to-day life and what must have been like to live there. So I described Tashvikiye, which... Um, which is part like uh, it's very close. It's really part of a larger what we think of today as a nishantashi, which is part of uh, Shishli, um, uh, as an as an elite neighborhood that was constructed as an elite neighborhood. Um, and it's very much housed uh, people that work for the palace, sometimes members of the royal family, um, and later on people that worked for the for uh, the Sublime Port. But all of the the big konaks that were built there. Uh, where uh, they were built on on this piece of land that is a vakf that belongs to the dynasty, uh, and the houses were given uh, to be used by these people, and then would should be theoretically returned uh, to be used by other people that would work later on for the palace or or the sublime port. So it's a kind of a custom-made uh, neighborhood of those that that were very close to to Yildiz, both physically it was close to Yildiz, uh, but uh, uh, but they, it's it's um, 
it's kind of a, a, a kind of a small ecosystem, if you will, of these uh, elites that interacted with one another. And what I try to highlight is that during the period of Abdul Hamid's time, a lot of those households were people from Arabic-speaking majority provinces, whether it is in the Levant, uh, whether they came from the Levant or North Africa. Um, the reason I wanted to highlight that is to first highlight the diversity of people that worked for the palace under Abdul Hamid, but to emphasize the large kind of uh, amount of Arabs that that did not only live in Istanbul, but also made uh, Tashviki what it is uh, during that period. Um, they brought with them their own uh, um, uh, notions of eliteness uh, that then gets melded into a larger kind of global uh, inter-imperial uh, uh, class structure. Um Tashikiye was, as I said, custom made for these elite families that moved in. Some houses were bigger than others. In most cases, you could see the palace from your backyard, literally. Um, um, it was a hill that is opposite the hill where the yield is. Of course, before um, uh, Thulia and all of these places were built, uh, you could see all the way to the to the palace. And I have that description of, of uh, I was lucky enough to find a description from inside of uh, Sadek Azanzade's house talking about how you can see all the way to the palace and all the way to the Bosphorus and even into Asia from these um, Konaks. But it also was close to Para or Beolu, um, a, a short walk um, or a short tram ride would put you right there at kind of a, uh, the, the entertainment and cultural uh, center of not just the, 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 the capital, in many ways, the empire. Um, they so they lived halfway through almost halfway between Yildiz and and Beolo. Um, uh, that allowed them uh, their kids to be sent to Galatasaray. Most of them went to Galatasaray, at least this, uh, where they uh, were educated in, in, of course, Turkish, but mostly French. Um, so they produced a specific kind of an elite subject uh, that usually gets rehired into into the state in one way or another, formally or informally. Uh, and uh, uh, and then a lot of these subjects, some of my colleagues have ri- have written about all of these people that were trained in Istanbul that in many ways uh, went back to the provinces. What I'm talking about in my book are the people that do not go back to the provinces, but in many ways are are from Istanbul and stay within the, the kind of the center of the empire rather than being uh, kind of um, just come from the province, get educated and leave and go back and influence what's happening in the provinces and later on in, in what happens in the nation states. So they're a, kind of a unique group of people, Arab Ottomans that are Istanbulu uh, and identified as such. And that's very important to mention. They really identified with being Istanbulu and that came with uh, notions of eliteness, notions of being of a different class than the majority of the people in the empire. Of course, urbanness uh, relating to other imperial elites in other empires, uh, stretching from you know um, uh, Vienna to to London and uh, Russia as well. Um, so they had that kind of closeness with them. I, they identified with those people through the notion of being imperial elites that live in Istanbul and are of Istanbul. Um, uh, so th- I try. Th- that's why the neighborhood where they live, situating them in that city, was very important to me uh, to kind of establish right at the beginning. And I devote quite a bit of time to give a sense of what it is. 
also that neighborhood as an elite neighborhood also included not just uh, these happy people that played the piano and went to ballrooms uh they uh which i talk about a little bit and it's fun it's a little netflixy if you will um but but it also includes a lot of uh the underbelly of empire of course uh um and the the ugliness that makes all of these things possible including slavery uh, which I I bring up at the beginning of the book and then I bring up later in the book, but the household slavery that takes place, um, uh, which which is not a um, a new thing that I'm mentioning, but it's something that I try to give a little bit more form and life, and emphasize the fact that even at the beginning of the 20th century, though it was still practiced, though in many cases in different names, uh, those kind of uh, either um, underpaid or, or, or I should say unpaid labor that, that lived in those households and worked for these people made their glamorous life possible. And I try to make sure that I highlight that. There is a racialized aspect to slavery um, that I also try to highlight, and it's reflected, and in many ways it reflects directly on uh, Arabness or what is Arab at that point, which, of course, I'm happy to talk about uh, if you want, but it's in a different chapter. Yeah, no, that might be a good way of thinking, starting to think about a Sadiq Amzade a little bit, because as you said at the beginning of this, your answer just now, there is a difference between your first book and this book. I, I went back and looked at your first book again. I read it maybe five years ago, I think. And yeah, it's this great diplomatic history of the time. But then now, having read the second book of yours, I went back and looked at it and realized that there's all this new texture you're bringing in about someone like Sadiq Azamzadeh. Because when I saw him in the first book, he's this diplomatic figure, writing letters, communicating, having you know, making suggestions to the court. But here, he's this individual experiencing all these places he's going and all these things he's doing. And so in this book, you go, you look at some of the, let's say, adventures he had and uh, activities he did, and you show how in those things he's doing, there's this performance of race, performance of identity. And I'm wondering... What lessons do you see him taking from these experiences and what strategies do you see him employing in terms of presenting himself, performing his role as an Arab imperialist? Maybe we can start looking at some of these issues of race and empire and all these things by looking at him and uh, how you talk about him in this second book. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, I was, I'm lucky enough to have several versions of what he wrote uh, while he's traveling. So um, he left a lot of documents. Most of them are in the Bashbakan look. They're uh, kind of reports from his, when he was, you know, uh, um, accompanying um, royalty from either Russia or Germany through the Levant and other kind of reports. Those are one kind of uh, uh, set of documents that I have. But what I also have are these travel logs um, that many people are familiar with uh, as they in the format that they're published in. Uh, but what I was able to get uh, is the original manuscripts of those travel logs of him traveling first in the Eastern Sahara um, in the Libyan desert, uh, and uh, later on in, in in the Horn of Africa, you know Djibouti into into Ethiopia. 
the reason I have uh, I emphasize the fact that I have several versions of them is because what I try to read is not just what is written in the final version, but what is taken out as these different versions are produced and why they're taken out. What is this? What are the silences or enforced silences, and what kind of sensitivities do they betray uh, about that? period in time. And a lot of these, uh, so you find him performing on on paper for an audience back in Istanbul, uh, not just what he sees, but who he is or who he wants to portray himself to be. Uh, so I, I try and show how that changes over time from his time in, in, in the late 19th century to the beginning of the 20th century, where first it's an urban Ottomanness that he kind of relates to a global imperial project um, or a gro- global imperial subjecthood. <laughs> um, uh, and how that becomes uh, more uh, explicitly uh, racialized um, later uh, within a period of seven years, um, where his identity or his identification uh, with uh, uh, racial typologies as he's trying to other the, uh, whoever he's encountering along the way become a lot more important and I argue that that import that him portraying that bringing in the notion of whiteness quite literally as a, in opposition to what he sees as blackness in in the African uh, uh, with the Africans that he runs into in in Somalia and other places I I argue are not just um, uh, 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 they are well thought out strategies uh, that reflect his reality as it's changing, as the world is changing, as the position of the empire is weakening, um, and also as the position of him as an Arab Ottoman is also becoming um, uh, precarious towards the end of the 19th century. Um, uh, so his claim to to superiority takes on... Um, uh, a, 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 a racialized element uh, that I that I relate to what's happening to in 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 the metropole, not just along the frontiers. Why is whiteness so important to him? Why does he express it? Why is othering the uh, the uh, the you know black Muslims that he run into, for example, was so important to him? Um, uh, how is that different from how it used to be in his first travelogue? How is it changed or taken out in different versions of the of the different travelogues? Also, betrays the importance of these terminologies, whether it is Arab in the first uh, um, travelogue or whiteness or blackness, and so on, or, or kind of a um, derogatory reference to 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 locals in in uh, that he runs into in in Somalia and other places uh, in later versions of the second uh, travelogue. I try to say that this is not just him, uh, 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 him talking about himself or actually him talking about others, what he sees, what he encounters, what he describes are in many ways not about what he's seeing and describing. They're very much reflecting uh, uh, what's happening inside of his head, uh, what's happening in his own personal life, what's happening in his uh, in in his in the way uh, he positions himself in this world that is changing, this social space that is morphing and fracturing, uh, and uh, towards the end of the nineteenth century and the beginning of the twentieth century, um, that is the argument I make. And do you, I'm just curious. Do, do you think there's a he has a cohesive sense of self that develops out of this or do you think it is more of a 
fractured uh, sense of self that's uh, that emerges from this. So absolutely not a cohesive. So I, I don't think anybody when they uh, when uh, even when we are writing, um, a lot of people are going to analyze what we write and, and later on and try and um, kind of, um, you know, read between the lines and figure out where this person within the context of, you know, the history and, and their kind of subject position, uh, uh, how is that kind of betrayed through their writing? Um, uh, but we are definitely, you and I and everybody who is writing right now are not thinking this is the, this is the kind of fully constructed image or identity that I want to portray and I'm going to portray it uh, subtly through a secondary kind of description of other people. Of course not. Uh, uh, what I, what, but the greatness of kind of looking back that, you know, the, that uh, is, is you're able to not only look at one source, but you look at that source within a much wider con- um, uh, uh, pool of sources and what's happening around him. So that's why I, I call a, a lot of what I see is, or what I, a lot of what I describe an intimate history of global events, because I related to the global events that are taking place that in many ways, he, uh, Sadiq and, and Shafiq and, and his family are directly involved in or at least kind of they have a first row witness uh, position to what's happening in the world and what's happening in Istanbul. I, I, I bring up their writings and then put them in the, in, within the context of what's happening historically and then try to make meaning out of it. Um, hopefully convincing arguments uh, or, or kind of entryways into, into us talking uh, frankly uh, about about this kind of traumatic history of the end of empire and a lot of um, things that we have been very shy, if you will, or hesitant to talk about, uh, that includes things such as um, ethno-racial differentiation or, or racism uh, and, and how that reflected itself in the empire. The narrative for the empire that, uh, that we teach, that we have have been invested in as Ottomanists for a very long time and for a very good reason is emphasizing um, a kind of uh, the multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious nature of this empire, which are all very true. But we've also neglected uh, in, in our effort to portray the empire kind of to a global audience that might not know or that might have stereotypes about what a Muslim empire might be, we've neglected to to look deeper at what's happening um, within the context of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, so the themes such as uh, discrimination and, and, and racial discrimination or re- ethno-racialization of certain people, uh, notions of anti-blackness, what does whiteness look like, all of these things operated very much in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in urban spaces. And... Um, and we've either neglected them, we've been defensive about talking about them, um, and and that to our detriment. And I say our, I mean the people from that region's detriment. We do not, if you do not know the history, good, bad, and ugly, it's very hard to move on and relate to the rest of the region. So in many ways, once that uh, the people of the region are disconnected from the experience of the of the fracture 
of the region, you have disconnected them from the what, what binds them together in many ways, which is a very recent, at least in historical terms, uh, common shared history. Uh, a lot of it is traumatic, but, uh, but shared nonetheless. Um, and I think that is important, not just uh, within uh, kind of academic historical sense, but in many ways, uh, um, I think uh, those that, uh, I mean, places that have not come to terms with recent histories, um, uh, in many ways, the population is 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 itself is becomes uh, disconnected from its own self, from its own uh, uh, um, history, and what they're fed are are official versions of history that uh, uh, that that. Um, that leaves them disconnected from uh, from the wider region. I'm talking here specifically about, you know, nationalist tellings of history that people learn in, in official curricula, whether it is in Syria, Lebanon, or Turkey, right? Um, uh, and we do that in many ways because this period of transition is either too difficult or too inconvenient to look at. Here, what I offer is a very small window that I'm hoping will will open much larger windows or much larger discussions about how this period of fracture took place and what are some of the themes that we really should look at in order to understand what's happening in in, in that region today. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, well, you know, I, I, I want to come back to some of these issues when we talk about um, Shafiq as well. But uh, first, let's let's. Sort of finish uh, talking about Sadiq for a second. You have a, I don't know, maybe even my favorite chapter in the book, just the one I personally found interesting, was your discussion of his time in Bulgaria, because this is an area I hadn't thought about, I didn't know much about, and I really liked how you take his experiences there and show what this experience of being a um, servant of the Ottoman Empire and Arab Ottoman imperialist in somewhere like Bulgaria is. And so I hope maybe you could just talk a little bit about that as well. Um, tell about what he was doing in Bulgaria, the, tr- the difficulties he encountered, and uh, what you think that tells us about the, the, the nature of the empire in these later years yeah, uh, on, as it heads towards revolution in 1990, uh, 1908. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, so... Uh... His time, uh, his, his, I think the height of his career, uh, his biggest mission um, is becoming a special commissioner in Bulgaria at a time when Bulgaria was uh, more or less an autonomous region as a principality, as opposed to a kingdom and thus fully independent. So that in many ways, the, the, the sovereign is still the sultan, but um only theoretically or technically, if you will. So, of course, you do not send an ambassador, you send a special commissioner, the way they do with Egypt, for example. Uh, but uh, now this person, the special commissioner, has to walk a very, very uh, delicate, fine line, um, a balance between asserting the sovereignty of the empire over this region without offending people that are actually in power locally. So so things can happen. So they, they'll be able to do things things. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, in many ways, the Bulgaria um, uh, the, uh, is, is, was still in the process of disconnecting itself, inclu- and that has reflections in the population that lived in Bulgaria and 
uh, and and the rest of the Ottoman Empire in the in Rumadi in general. Uh, what I mean by that is that you have to figure out who belongs on what side of the border. What are these tra- the very ugly kind of ethnic cleansing? Um, uh, processes that are taking place, how does it uh, manifest itself? How do you negotiate it between Istanbul and, and Sofia? Um, uh, practical things such as trade, uh, trains passing through Bulgaria into the Ottoman Empire, passports. Do you need passports uh, to go from Bulgaria to, to the Ottoman Empire if theoretically they're still part of it? All of these nitty-gritty things that are very, very sensitive topics because they hit on notions of sovereignty, both for Bulgarians, but of course for the Ottoman. So you need to have someone who is a perfect diplomat, who is who should have a lot of support theoretically from Istanbul to do his job. And uh, Sadiq, uh, who has had experience in Rumeli in the past, uh, uh, is assigned to this position with the hope that he would be that person. Um, what ends up happening is that because he gets very little support from the sublime port, uh, this is this is in many ways where you get uh, a sense of the r- real um, division between the sublime port and the power, like and Mabain, the powers of the palace. How the palace assigned him, the palace supports him, but the sublime port is not sure, or they actually are very doubtful of his intentions. They're also not supporting him financially. They kind of suffocate his mission uh, uh, and hint at it, at corruption all the time, at, at what he does as being uh, corruption, you know, kind of misuse of funds and so on. Because of these conflicts that are happening, it, it he continuously claims that it becomes incredibly difficult for him to to do his job as representing this weak and weakening empire that theoretically is still uh, um, uh, kind of the overlords uh, of of Bulgaria, but on the ground they are really they have very little power. Uh, and and as as a very proud uh, individual, a very proud imperialist, he finds it very difficult to be put in a position himself personally, in a position where he is actually in a in a weaker state than uh, representing the larger empire in Sofia, which is a small principality. And you see that play out. Um, and I try to explain how how the, the the personal relationships of diplomacy, the personal relationships of global powers talking to one another are incredibly important and how they manifest themselves in the household or in the, in the, in, in, uh, of, of, uh, Azimzade, uh, Sadiq Azimzade while he's in Bulgaria. Um, um, so it is, it's basically talks about the precarity of a weakening empire, the precarity of, of, of these arrangements that were in many ways, uh, transitory, um, where you know the, a lot of the Balkans go into this uh, uh, in-between state of being aut- autonomous, with usually protection from Russia or protection from Britain or both, uh, um, uh, but yet remain theoretically under the sovereignty of the Sultan, uh, with the Sultan being the sovereign, and how that actually operates in real life, particularly as as the power of the sultan itself is being challenged not just uh, uh, by uh, global powers, um, the great powers, but also uh, 
domestically by others, including the Sublime Port. So the Young Turk Revolution doesn't come out of nowhere, as we all know. There's been years and years and years of, of the palace trying to suppress some of these uh, things that are limiting its own powers, including its international powers and how they operate internationally. We see how that actually works and at how it hinders the, the, the work of Sadek as the representative of the palace in Bulgaria um, uh, through this chapter, through this time period. Again, that's what I mean by uh, an intimate history of global events, uh, because uh, it's it's what's happening in his households and his own personal frustrations reflect a lot of the frustrations of, of a dying empire. Well, yeah, and as you say, I mean, so in 1908, there is this uh, Young Turk revolution, I, we can say, and the constitution is brought back and there's elections. And this gets us to your discussion of uh, his, uh, his cousin Shafiq. And uh, again, this is a... Uncle. He's younger, but yeah, he's younger yeah. than, but it's actually his uncle, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. And, um, but this, I mean, this gets us to what I think is a really interesting argument you're making about the way these Arab Ottomans were included or not included in this m- moment of democracy in 1908, 9, 10. Uh, so maybe if you could talk us through this a little bit. Tell us a little bit about Shafiq. Who was he and what sort of issues did he encounter as he tried to participate in this new order that was being fashioned? Yeah, so Shafiq is is uh, kind of uh, moved to Istanbul around the same time as Sadiq, but he took on, uh, they lived very close to one another. They're a block away from one another. Um, uh, and But they have very different careers. Uh, Shafiq stayed very close to um, uh, the Mebain uh, in different positions, uh, worked uh, for at the translation uh, office in the palace and later kind of uh, went on from there. He had a lot of power that he exerted, a lot of informal power, I should say, <laughs> uh, that he was, and connections that he was able to, to use throughout his career under, uh, with, uh, you know, um, working for Abdul Hamid. Now, um, unlike Sadiq, who kind of was, of course, um, through the whole Tasfiyah Ruteb thing, he was he was demoted because he was considered to be too close to the Sultan. He was punished. A lot of these people that were that went through these martial uh, courts, if you will, uh, after the revolution. Uh, of course, Sadiq was a member of the military, so that would make sense. Uh, uh, and so he did not fare very well after the revolution. Shafiq somehow reinvented himself very quickly uh, and went from being a servant of the palace to the servant of the people. Uh, in this case people from the province of of Damascus, uh, of Syria. And um, uh, this reinvention uh, uh, that Shafiq went through allowed me to go into the into the the post-Hamidian period, the transition period through the, you know, the the elation of po- uh, of what uh, and the possibility of of what um, kind of an empire state would look like um, uh, in modern sense and under a democracy with a representation uh, of the people that lived in this very, very, very complex uh, empire. 
how that looked like, the possibilities and the hopes and how people imagined it would be. And then the very, very quick, almost like stillborn uh, 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 end of that possibility and and how that manifested itself for those that did not fit into uh, the CUPs, particularly kind of um, hardcore uh, CUP members that started to think very much along lines of what what an Ottoman should be on a cultural level, um, uh, not just a political level. Uh, and that in many ways, though... Um, Though some might disagree with me, uh, many ways it manifested itself in kind of a, a, a cultural war um, between those that didn't did not think that uh, being Ottoman meant automatically being a Turk, um, and those that really, in many ways, operated under that assumption, almost to the point that it it they didn't need to explain it. Um, the idea that you know Ostrich uh, uh, was the Turkish that should be spoken in the parliament should have said something. Uh, it's not Ottoman Turkish. It's uh, it's this kind of a new uh, old. A purified notion of Turkish, which reflected the attitude of a lot of the people that were in power. That left people like Shafiq uh, with all of his problems. Um, as a, I mean, he's a very flawed person. As 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 hopefully the the uh, he's no hero is what I'm trying to say. But with all of the, uh, his problems, he was very much at the forefront of this fight. Um, as an Arab Ottoman imperialist, now member of parliament, representing Arabic-speaking majority provinces, uh, so uh, and and that manifested itself on the on the floor um, in debates that turned very ugly and that uh, that kind of left a lot of the people that are from of Arab origin, particularly uh, carved out, left out. Uh, and eventually become the suspicious group, uh, kind of the, the the intimate other is what I call it, uh, within within uh, the context of the empire. Seeing that through the life of Shafiq, uh, particularly while he's in the parliament, and all of the ugliness that is brought up um, to try and uh, kind of go not just after him, but after many Arab uh, Ottoman representatives in many different ways, kind of portraying them as as essentially corrupt or essentially um uh, 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 kind of relics of of a system of the Hamidian period or of a system of corruption that they're trying to get over is, I argue, uh, a part of a much larger uh, um, uh, process that started before the Young Turk Revolution in which ethno-racial differentiation and particularly anti-Arabness uh, is, 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 part, is, is, is part of the discussion, if you will. It's part of the discourse. Uh, and this kind of style of uh, Turk versus Arab uh, 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 politics is a reflection of that, not excluded or outside of the reality of day-to-day life or day-to-day lived life. Um, that is what I'm trying to argue in, 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 in what I do, particularly in the, in the metropole and not just in the provinces. The provinces are a different story. When it's an Arabic-seeking majority province, it's, of course, the dynamics are different. But when you're someone who is at the center representing those provinces but are very much off the center, have, always, have been part of the political game for decades, uh, uh, the, the 
the dynamics are different and what you're experiencing might betray something that is coming from the center and can uh, um, uh, kind of spread into other parts of the empire. But it's not about center periphery dynamics. It's not like the way it's been uh, portrayed in the past. It's not about political games and rhetoric. In many ways, it's a manifestation of what has been taking place for a while that is amplified, of course, uh, through political rhetoric. Um, it's reflected in Shafiq's life. I'm not going to go into the details of that chapter, but in many ways, I tried to show that his the attacks against him, the personal attacks against him, and then how he responds to it and how other Arab Ottoman imperialists respond to these attacks of uh, um, kind of this back and forth negotiation of what it means to be uh, Ottoman at this point in time and on whose terms. Uh, is is very important. It's something that needs a lot more exploration, and it again tells you about uh, um, a very difficult period of of uh, 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 kind of morphing into what will come after the end of the empire. This notion that oops, the end of the empire happened suddenly, and and the split took a long time because it happened suddenly, is really not entirely. Um, accurate uh, if you look at the day-to-day life of people that experienced it before the young tech revolution through the cup period into the post uh, uh, into the of course world war one where a lot of arab ottoman families were interred uh, into we should really uh, remember that a lot of these people that were very much considered part of the empire before the end of the empire were that were uh, started to become sus, uh, kind of essentially suspect and uh, reflecting what's happening in other empires when wars happen. But it's something that we don't talk about because the narrative until recently has been about, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, everybody, there is like a difference between uh, uh, Muslims and non-Muslims that is acknowledged, but the Arab Turk, Kurd, if you're uh, in the Ottoman Empire, you were part of it until until you were not. Well, that's not quite accurate. Uh, and I wanted to highlight that, particularly if you look at the experience of day-to-day people at the center of what of these debates. Yeah, and you know, there's one other, um, we've mentioned the two main figures in the book, but you also talk about uh, Izzet, another member of uh, mm-hmm. this Ottoman imperial elite, and you give the example of how he was referred to as Arap Izzet. And yeah. maybe this is something to like, just focus on for a sec, because I think you do a very interesting job of showing how this kind of illustrates what you're getting at, how it's not that he's excluded from the imperial elite by any means, but there's some distancing going, there's something going on there. I, maybe you can talk about that, too. Yeah, absolutely. So the term, uh, there's a chapter in the book called Coming to Terms with Arap, um, it's like a play on words. It's a term coming to terms, uh, <laughs> but I really, I wanted, I, it's, it's something, um, as someone who spends so much time in Istanbul has been doing it now since 1997, first as a civil engineer and later as, as someone who wanted to learn Turkish and later as a, as a historian, um, there's a very complicated relationship, uh, between, um, uh, uh, the uh, modern Turkey, or um, and and 
its Arab neighbors um, and how they perceive them, what kind of stereotypes they have about them. Um, and of course, it, it becomes a lot more uh, obvious uh, when there was a huge kind of influx of Syrian refugees um, and all of the, of course, lovely, intimate things that take place, but also a lot of the discrimination that is more recently because of the elections coming up are now turning ugly, <laughs> kind of anti-Arabness. And people think it's a recent thing. Um this complicated relationship, this intimate relationship between Arabic-speaking people and Turkish-speaking people, whether they are in Anatolia or in the Arab world, is 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 not either all wonderful or all ugly. It is complicated. It's um, it's complicated, particularly. Uh, it becomes a lot more complicated, particularly uh, as notions of of ethnicity and race uh, come to play in the beginning of the twentieth century. And that gets reflected uh, that early uh, in the Ottoman Empire. No, uh, the word Arab, uh, uh, as we know, is complex. Uh, of course, it can be Arab, uh, but also it means black. Uh, in kind of, um, it's not even informal. Actually, you cup dictionary, you'll find it there as well. But but in in, in many cases, it's like a hush hush. Uh, if you're Arab and somebody calls. Uh, um, uh, a, a black person are up in front of you, they have to explain why they did that because they know that there's some awkward racialized notion of Arabness. And also uh, the idea that if you refer to uh, to um, an, a person of African origin, a black person as Arab, uh, it's an insult to Arabs, which is weird, which is which tells you it, it betrays a complicated understanding or uh, of anti-blackness so you have to explain it to to what they call ak arab like white arabs um in in that period but also uh this idea that you can deploy arab um as an inside insult uh within the ranks of these people that early on um uh, we know it as an insult now in many different ways usually it comes with with hyphens uh, that i'm not going to go into now um uh, particularly because of the huge influx of not just uh, first it was tourists remember it's like a, and and if you know Turkish uh, in 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 a, a decade ago when a lot of the tourists from uh, the Gulf countries would come and you would you and you'd be in the same store and you would hear what the you know the 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 people serving them were saying about them in Turkish uh, you understand that there is kind of deeply racist notions of what Arabs are like uh, that was playing out because uh, Turkey was opening up to its neighbors again uh, in a way that betrayed uh, uh, many, many decades of being uh, kind of uh, shut off from them. In many ways, Arabness becomes then, like being Turkish is being not Arab, if, 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 you, if that makes sense. That... <laughs> or at least part of it is being not Arab. It's very, very important. Uh, that racialized notion of uh, Arabness and what it comes with it and the meanings that it, uh, the meanings that the word entails is uh, it kind of it explodes uh, during the Young Turk Revolution because uh, after the Young Turk Revolution, I should say, when a lot of the Arab Ottoman imperial uh, um, uh, parliamentarians uh, say, you need to stop deploying Arab as an insult. Um, and uh, uh, and they deploy it as an insult to Izzet Pasha uh, because Izzet Pasha is almost universally hated, uh, uh, kind of used as a um, an example of not just corruptness, but in many ways, 
like the corrupt Arab circle around Abdul Hamid. Um, uh, he he was a, a second katib. He was a secretary to the to the and an advisor, of course, to the Sultan. Very close to him, influenced huge policies well beyond the Arab provinces. People talk about them and the Hejaz, right? But he's really the man is fascinating. Like fascinating. It, it the that what has been written about him has not done him justice. Not because they they always talk about his corruption, which is fundamental. Notion of corruption, by the way, needs to be in, investigated in a more complex way than we have in the Ottoman uh, Empire, because we think of it in, in our modern terms and try and reflect it. That's a different story. But more importantly, that the amount of influence that this man from a very specific uh, neighborhood in Damascus had on on the policies of the empire, well beyond in, uh, with Europe, the empire with uh, with uh, with the Armenian question, the empire uh, with Africa. Um, uh, sorry, I've kind of digressed a little bit. So when he when he runs away, uh, kind of goes into self exile, takes all his money with him. Uh, uh, he is usually brought up in the parliament as an example of the corrupt uh, former regime. And people that are relatives, uh, remember that Shafiq and uh, Sadiq are relatives of his. Uh, they're, they're distant cousins. His mom, his stepmom, is that stepmom is, is an, an Azamzadeh. Uh, they, the, he is usually brought up as kind of a, a backhand slap, if you will, of, of these Arab, uh, Ottoman imperialists that were the representation of an, an old corrupt regime that they're trying to get out of. So uh, him being called Arab was not innocuous. It's not about him coming from Arabia. He doesn't come from Arabia. Uh, Sadiq Masala was called Shamlu sometimes, which makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't they call him Shamlu? A lot of it has to do with with his, um, as a, a, it, they brought it up, usually they deployed it as an insult. It was never an official part of his, termino- of his, of his uh, title. And a lot, unfortunately, a lot of historians now have adopted that terminology uh, without questioning it because they assume that it's innocuous. It is not innocuous. And people then knew that it was not innocuous. It wasn't harmless. It was an insult. It was an insult to use Arabness as an insult, which was weird, but also to deploy it was also an insult. Um, uh, and 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 I bring that up in both in, in a couple of chapters, particularly after the Young Turk Revolution. I'm sorry, I went on on a um, tangents with this one. I hope this was clear, or at least no, indeed, okay. indeed. And you know, I mean, I, I, I was gonna. I always like to wrap these up with, by asking people what their next project is, and and I'm just going to ask that to you as well. But I'm wondering now: is it a um, account of is it Pasha, or uh, you've certainly made the sales pitch for it? Uh, no, it is not. It's definitely not a counter. Is it Pasha? Writing something that does justice not to the people, but uh, uh, writing um, using people's lives, kind of a micro history to tell bigger stories is what I'm interested in. I'm really not interested in the in the lives of these people for themselves. Uh, 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 one can do that with Izzet Pasha in a very huge way. One can really follow Izzet Pasha, particularly if you're interested in international relations of the Ottoman Empire and write a wonderful, that will take another 15 years that I'm not sure I have. Uh, um, uh, so I will leave it to someone. Hopefully, someone will take it up and actually look at the complexities of Izzet uh, Pasha and and his influence, and also how his life intersected with with global events that the empire was involved in. Very important project that needs to be done. Hopefully, without bias. Um, 
my next project is actually what was going to be my my second project. Uh, uh, it's what I was working on literally when the explosion happened. Um, and it's it's uh, Ottoman uh, involvement in the Horn of Africa, um, uh, which I'm still very much committed to. I did five years of intensive kind of uh, research now and um, in Ethiopia and in Somalia and and in Sudan and of course in the Ottoman archives and and London and and I think it's a very very important. Uh, um, uh, kind of part of understanding imperialism uh, at large at the end of the 19th century and how it operated, particularly in uh, Northeast Africa, that I'm still committed to and that I will go back to as soon as this period of transition from this book uh, um, ends. Well, that's, I mean, if that sounds good and I look forward to it, I'm, I mean, I want to thank you for coming and talking. This book, this book of yours, Losing Istanbul, I I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed it paired with your first book, which is also fascinating as well. But put, but together, this one really gives you a whole new sense of how to think about the, the topics you're discussing. So I hope people will go out and find your first book if they haven't already read it. Certainly find this book if they haven't already read it. Thank you so much. Because they're both wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, um, I, sh- I should mention that I'm working very hard to get this book translated very quickly um, into Arabic and into Turkish because the first book just came out in Arabic. It's uh, from uh, it's in UAE, but it came out in Turkish in 2018. But I think it's important that people in the region who might not feel comfortable reading academic books in English uh, uh, also engage with this history. Mm-hmm. I want to engage with them as well. Um, so yeah, working hard on, on getting that done. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for your time. I, I appreciate it's it. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ruben. <laughs>